The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Much of the debate about the integrity of the Bible has centered around the apparent contradictions and discrepancies uh, that are found there on matters of historical detail. Synoptic portions of the Bible, particularly the parallel passages in Samuel Kings and Chronicles and in the Gospels, provide the primary exhibit of what are considered to be factual lapses on the part of the biblical historians. Harmonization is the effort to provide scenarios by which two apparently contradictory statements or one improbable statement can be considered historically accurate. Where one gospel puts Jesus' sermon on a mountain in Matthew 5.1 and another on level ground in Luke 6.17, the harmonist replies by suggesting that there was a plateau on the side of the mountain or that Jesus gave the same sermon in different locales, and the factuality of both texts is thereby preserved. These uh, sorts of apparent contradictions are reasonably common in the Bible, and they characteristically involve numerical contradictions, chronological and geographical dislocations, different quotations of what appear to be the same speech, and similar types of problems. There are a number of handbooks which have attempted to catalog and answer many of these problems. Is a harmonistic component in exegesis a necessary and inevitable consequence of the doctrine of inerrancy? Or conversely, is rejection of harmonistic exegesis or the reluctance to practice it the equivalent to a, the equivalent, uh, to a rejection of inerrancy? What role should harmonization play in biblical studies? These are inherently difficult questions, and they're complicated by the considerable theological and emotional investment that many have in the answers. Many evangelicals consider answers to these questions somewhat of a theological watershed, a convenient touchstone or shibboleth dividing acceptable and unacceptable views about the Bible. I have a friend who's fond of saying that for every difficult, complex, hard question, there is always a simple, clear, unambiguous, decisive, wrong answer. Uh, and um, it's tempting when looking at the kinds of historical phenomena we see in the Bible to, to look for quick and easy answers to the, the questions. Uh, but I'm afraid that the set of questions involves requires more than a simple slogan. A summary of the assets and the liabilities involved in harmonization uh, will helpfully, hopefully, uh, clarify the issues. I'm going to be drawing primarily from the books of Chronicles for illustrative purposes, since they have been the focus of my own work for some time, and present uh, some of the most difficult and interesting uh, material in this subject area. <clears throat> First, I uh, want to talk a little bit about harmonization as an asset, harmonization as a help, what are the things uh, that harmonization uh, does for us that are genuinely uh, of value? <clears throat> and uh, first among these, I, I would say, is that harmonization is an inevitable feature of human experience. It's an unavoidable uh, sort of an exercise. The question is not, should we harmonize or not, uh, because harmonization is a universal feature of daily life. At home, Parents confront sharply different versions of a recent squabble between children, the children often sincerely believing their own accounts and arranging the data to make a particular point, usually their own innocence and the culpability of their fellow combatants. Uh, the parents are put in the situation of hearing both accounts and trying to create a scenario that's somewhat closer to reality. Uh, closer to what a more detached observer would have reported 
or what would have been recorded on a videotape. A close and trusted friend who is a salesperson calls on you at your office and extols the virtue of the equipment that he would like to sell you while you're left trying to reconcile his account with the complaints of other friends who are using the very same item in their offices. Encounters like these are almost a daily feature of life. You hope that when a friend hears information that appears to be in tension with something that you have told him, he will at least mentally reconcile the discrepancies or investigate further before he accuses you of falsehood or of error. One must give the scriptures at least that same benefit of a doubt. The daily reconciliation of observed discrepancies is part and parcel with harmonization as a component of exegesis. It's a natural reaction. One cannot a priori or simplistically repudiate harmonization of biblical data without contradicting what is a routine and natural response to data in other areas of life. Harmonization in this sense appears to be a universal convention. Scholars writing from within almost any theological or critical stance, in theory, make allowance for harmonization and exegesis, though in practice, factual difficulties are usually the grist from which scholars compose their theories of sources and redaction and the like, and efforts to harmonize are often dismissed with ridicule. Such facile rejection forgets the realities of what uh, we experience in our daily lives. A second uh, thing that uh, is an asset to the practice of harmonization is its antiquity. Uh, harmonization in biblical studies did not develop de novo among religious conservatives sometime after the Enlightenment as a way of defending their view of the Bible. Quite to the contrary, if harmonization is a routine and universal activity applied in many areas of life, one would expect to find harmonization practiced also then in antiquity. And there is ample evidence that this was the case. You could argue that a certain amount of intra-biblical exegesis reflects this effort. For example, the books of Kings, which explain the fall of the kingdoms and the end of the temple to an exilic audience, uh, have been viewed as harmonizing this reality with the earlier promises of God to Israel concerning the temple and, God and David's descendants. In this way, the book of Kings is a theodicy it justifies God's actions to men, and theodicy is by its very nature a sort of harmonization. It's reconciling your expectations with what you observe. <clears throat> um, ancient scribes themselves also practiced uh, harmonization with some regularity, and many of the textual variants that we find in the Bible are, are the results of the efforts of the scribes to reconcile uh, tension in historical detail. Let me give you uh, just uh, two examples of this. Uh, the first of these comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 29 at verse 22, and the second at 2 Chronicles 22.8. Here is the passage uh, as it is found in the Hebrew Bible in 1 Chronicles 29.22. Uh, uh, we're told that, uh, well, perhaps I should back up just a little bit here to uh, fill in some background for you. Uh, Chronicles contains a, a very different account of the transfer of power from David to Solomon than that which is found in the books of Kings. In 1 Kings 1, uh, an aged and bedridden David faces an attempted coup d'etat supported by members of the royal household, the officers of the cult, and the military. And the kingdom is saved for Solomon only by the intervention of Bathsheba and Nathan just in the nick of time. Solomon's anointing as king in the book of Kings is hastily done. David himself is unable to attend uh, his own son's anointing as king. The picture in Chronicles, however, is sharply different from this. 
David presides over a national assembly, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 1. And he specifically names his son Solomon as his successor and charges him with the construction of the temple. Solomon receives the immediate and wholehearted support of all the people, including specifically in 1 Chronicles 29, 24, those who in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 9, are listed as having supported Adonijah's attempt at seizing the throne. In the Masoretic text of 1 Chronicles 29:22, in this context, it's reported that Solomon was made king a second time. Uh, and uh, when we sit down to look at the ancient versions of the Bible, in this case particularly the Septuagint and the Peshitta, the word second is not found in the text of these ancient translations. And uh, the most likely explanation for the absence of this, this reference to Solomon's being made king a second time is that a scribe has inserted the word second into our Hebrew text in order to harmonize 1 Chronicles 29 with the earlier statement in 1 Chronicles 23 uh, that David was old and full of days and made his son Solomon king over Israel. The fact that Solomon was made king was already mentioned earlier in the book and a scribe has inserted the word second uh, harmonizing these two accounts. Again, uh, the practice of harmonization is, is quite old, uh, going back into uh, the period of the early copying of the biblical text. A similar example uh, comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 8. Um, we'll forget the uh, Hebrew text because of time and uh, the fact that uh, there's no doubt a fair number of non-Hebrew reading people here, probably including some of my own students. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, this passage in Second uh, Chronicles 22.8 uh, reports that uh, Jehu, in the Hebrew uh, Bible, that Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab when he came upon the officials of Judah and the sons of the brothers of Ahaziah, and he killed them. And once again, when we sit down and compare this passage with other ancient versions of the Bible, it's striking that the word sons is missing uh, from the uh, Septuagint once again. Uh, and uh, one has to ask, well, why did this translator of the Septuagint leave it out? Or was the translator of the Septuagint following a text in which the word sons was not there? Uh, almost certainly that's the correct answer in this case because in Second uh, Chronicles 21.17 and in 22.1, just a few verses earlier, we find that Ahaziah was the youngest son of Jehoram and that all of Jehoram's sons had been killed uh, in an attack by the Philistines. Uh, this means that uh, Ahaziah's brothers could scarcely have been killed later by Jehu if they died earlier at the hands of the Philistines. Uh, therefore, a scribe has inserted the word sons uh, in order to harmonize this historical difficulty. It was not a necessary insertion uh, since the word ach in Hebrew, of course, can mean more than just brothers. It can mean relatives of a variety of different uh, distances. And uh, the word brothers is sufficiently ambiguous that it is quite correct in the original text. But a scribe has uh, apparently inserted the word sons here to reconcile this passage with the earlier report uh, that the brothers of uh, Ahaziah had already uh, been killed. And again, we could uh, multiply examples from this period uh, showing uh, the antiquity of the practice of harmonization. Uh, some of the variants in other textual witnesses, particularly in the chronological notices uh, in the books of Kings, probably represent the early uh, efforts at uh, scribes to harmonize uh, the very difficult problem of Old Testament chronology. Other examples would include uh, assimilating parallel passages in Jeremiah to one another. 
uh, leveling differences in the varying legal formulations within uh, the Old Testament. So again, uh, among the assets of harmonization are both uh, the fact that it's, it's something that we do on a daily basis. It has ample precedent in the history of the church and in Judaism. It's not something that's just uh, been around since the time of the Enlightenment. Uh, and uh, another uh, thing that favors the use of harmonization is the contributions that this practice has made to biblical studies. Though it's ordinarily impossible for us to prove a harmonization right or wrong, in a few instances, harmonistic approaches to biblical texts have led to fairly certain results. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, set siege to Jerusalem in the third year of Jehoiakim, according to Daniel 1.1. But in Jeremiah 25.1, this uh, siege is set in Jehoiakim's fourth year. The reference to uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, the reference to Nebuchadnezzar's first year as being Jehoiakim's fourth uh, is readily explained in Daniel 1.1 as a prolepsis. He's given this title in anticipation of his accession uh, to kingship. Few would quarrel that this is a satisfactory explanation. However, Edwin Tila provided an alternative explanation for this and many similar phenomena in the Old Testament chronologies two distinctions that Tila made between uh, the accession and non-accession year reckoning and between reckoning the new year from the month Nisan or Tishri have uh, accounted for many of the problem passages and apparent discrepancies in the uh, historical records of the uh, kings of Israel. Though Tila's system may not ultimately achieve consensus, anyone working on the problems of Old Testament chronology must grapple with the distinctions he has made. Their explanatory power is sufficiently great that they cannot be simply dismissed as unconscionably harmonistic. And there are many other passages, I think, where we could show uh, harmonistic exegesis has made a valuable contribution uh, to biblical studies. And uh, another area in which harmonization has an asset uh, a good plus, a reason for doing it, is the respect that harmonization as an exegetical method has for the capability of the biblical writer himself. Oswald Alice, uh, in his book, The Five Books of Moses, cites with approval the advice of Coleridge that when we meet an apparent error in a good author, we are to presume ourselves ignorant of his understanding until we are certain that we understand his ignorance. In this regard, harmonistic exegesis has much in common with aesthetic or literary critical approaches to the Bible. Phenomena which in the past were most frequently regarded as evidence of editorial bumbling now find their explanation as features of fairly sophisticated literary devices used by skillful authors. Uh, again, to resort to an example from Chronicles, uh, the chronicler record, records the appearance of the glory cloud at the dedication of Solomon's temple twice. Uh, that is found both in 2 Chronicles 5 at verses 13 and 14, and then in 2 Chronicles 7 at verses 1 to 3. Uh, and uh, the fact that uh, the cloud appears at the dedication of the temple twice in Chronicles but only once in the Book of Kings has uh, led most scholars working on Chronicles to conclude that the second time it appears in Chronicles is uh, the result of an editor who, working at a later time, forgot that it was already reported two chapters earlier and inserted it a second time in the Book of Chronicles at the same place in which it is found in the Book of Kings. Uh, so that this phenomenon of a double appearance of the glory cloud has traditionally been explained as a result of uh, a bumbling piece of editorial work. Uh, a later editor forgot uh, the proper positioning of this piece of information or forgot that it had already been put into the text. Um, 
now we are able to explain that same set of data, the double appearance of the glory cloud, in a different way uh, by understanding that the writer of Chronicles is using an extended chiastic device to report the entirety of the reign of Solomon. Uh, 30 years ago, uh, the extent to which chiasm was used in the Hebrew Bible in structuring narratives was not appreciated in biblical scholarship. Uh, 30 years ago, this way of explaining this particular phenomenon was not readily available to us. Now we can appreciate that the double appearance of the glory cloud in Chronicles is a feature of a fairly sophisticated and extended literary device that the writer is using. Uh, it points to the writer's capability rather than to the bumbling uh, and carelessness of some inept later editor. And again, similar examples could be multiplied in other contexts uh, where harmonization shows its respect for the biblical authors. And finally, I think we would all agree that the main reason we practice harmonization is because of its theological warrant. All of the considerations we've been talking about have a role to play, but harmonization draws its principal operating strength from its theological warrant. God is true and cannot lie, and the scriptures share in this attribute. The incarnational analogy is fundamental, just as the living word was divine and without error so also the written word. More than any other single factor, it is the belief in the divine origin and the authority of the Bible that has given harmonization its importance in uh, biblical exegesis. The work of exegesis is influenced, controlled by an overriding apologetic concern. And uh, this is proper. This is as it should be. <coughs> Now, I know that um, probably most of you are interested in the second half of this paper. Uh, and, uh, and that's where we change now to talk about not the strengths of harmonization as an exegetical method, not the benefits of doing it, but the problems that come with it. Uh, harmonization as a hindrance. Harmonization of biblical texts as a liability. And uh, once again, there are several features in uh, the practice of harmonization uh, that, uh, that make it not always an asset. And uh, one of these is uh, its arbitrariness. Harmonizations of discrepancies within the biblical text are too often offered almost cavalierly tackles are raised by what appears to be odd hoke invoking of any set of circumstances that will reconcile passages. Those steeped in higher critical methods look at this as special pleading, and it is rejected because it lacks any methodological control beyond the need for a quick solution. Nor are harmonizations amenable to proof or disproof. They have some varying degrees of probability, some more convincing than others, and some altogether too ingenious to commend the solution that they, uh, they attempt. Now again, uh, a few examples might help of where uh, um, harmonization gets us into as much trouble as it uh, helps us. And uh, I'd like to draw from three different areas uh, for this, perhaps four, uh, depending on how our time is going. Uh, but the first of these uh, would be from uh, the large numbers in the books of Chronicles. The large numbers uh, in the books of Chronicles. <coughs> these large numbers have always been something of a stumbling block especially the large numbers of troops under the commands of the kings of a rather small kingdom of Judah. Uh, I hope that most of you either received or have access to uh, two pages of a handout that I circulated. I'm sorry I didn't prepare enough copies. Uh, there are two pages involved there. One 
giving you a list of statistics drawn from the World Book primarily for casualty figures in World War II, uh, and the other a list of army sizes and casualty figures uh, drawn from the books of Chronicles. And I think that if you uh, sit down and look at the result of international warfare, mechanized warfare, uh, in the 20th century, and the casualty and troop deployment figures that come to us from World War II, and then you compare those with uh, ones in Chronicles, where uh, with some regularity the, the uh, kings of a small kingdom of Judah were fighting with armies three and four times uh, the size of the Allies in major battles in World War II, uh, you begin to uh, ask yourself how to adjust these figures in the books of Chronicles. Uh, to mm, what they seem to be in tension with, uh, our observable experience in uh, the mechanized warfare of the modern era. And uh, almost everyone feels the need to reduce these numbers in Chronicles in one way or another. Uh, and articles by J. Barton Payne and John Wenham uh, represent fairly typical efforts to cope with these figures. Uh, Payne's uh, article uh, in two parts in the journal Bibsac, uh, Bibliotheca Sacra, on uh, the subject of large numbers uh, in Chronicles, and also the uh, article in the Tyndall Bulletin by Wenham on the subject of large numbers in, um, in the Old Testament. Uh, both of these represent fairly typical approaches to the problem of numbers, and they're not confined to evangelicals. Uh, this approach that uh, Wenham and uh, Payne take was popularized first by uh, Mendenhall in his own work on the census lists in the books of Numbers, although others had anticipated him uh, earlier in the literature. Uh, in this uh, sort of approach in dealing with large numbers, uh, the Hebrew word thousand, elif, is uh, taken to represent a subunit of a clan or fratry. Um, and it is an unquestionable, legitimate use of the word elif. Elif in the Hebrew Bible is not always a number. It is sometimes a clan uh, or an extended family, a subunit of a clan within the Hebrew Bible. And uh, passages where you can see this most clearly are found in Judges 6.15, in Numbers 1.16, and in Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, and if the word elif can mean a tribal subunit, uh, this subunit of the tribe may consist of considerably less than a thousand individuals, so that an elif, a fratry, uh, might really involve no more than uh, 20 men, uh, or 50 men, or even 10. Uh, men-at-arms who could represent their families in a folk militia raised from uh, the members of the families of individual tribes. Uh, and uh, if you take the word elif and just change the vowels on it, uh, by just modifying the vowels on the word elif, repoint it a little bit, uh, you can have the word aluf, uh, in its plural usually alufim, and an aluf is a commander of an elif, uh, someone who is a military officer. And uh, both Payne and Wenham uh, operate with both approaches to these large numbers in Chronicles. When you read of X number thousand troops in Chronicles, it's really X number fratries. And we can reduce uh, that number of 1,000 to something 5% the size by redefining the word elif. Or we can reduce the number 1,000 to a single individual by simply changing the vowels so that the word thousand becomes aluf, a single military officer. Uh, and uh, when you apply this sort of an approach to the large numbers uh, in the Hebrew Bible, it becomes uh, fairly easy to, uh, especially in Chronicles where so many of them occur, becomes fairly easy to get these things down to manageable size, uh, something that uh, would seem to accord better with reality. 
Chronicle Chronicles tells us, for example, that Jehoshaphat had a standing army of 1,100,000 in Jerusalem. This is at a time when our population estimates from archaeology for the city of Jerusalem are about 10,000 people. And uh, so we know we have to do something with those numbers. Uh, and uh, and uh, that's just a, a fairly dramatic uh, way of confronting uh, uh, how large uh, that difficulty is. And, uh, and I'd like to just show you a few passages where this works. In 1 Chronicles 12, you have a list of David's mighty warriors. Uh, and the writer goes through the tribes of Israel in 1 Chronicles 12, uh, gathering the numbers uh, who came from the various tribes, the numbers of men-at-arms uh, who came in order to make David king. And uh, after giving a list, the total would be roughly 360,000 people. Uh, we're told that these 360,000 were all of one mind to make David king. They spent three days with David eating, eating and drinking. Uh, their families had supplied them with provisions. Uh, and uh, there was great joy in Israel during this three-day celebration. Now, some feel very skeptical about 360,000 people, 360,000 soldiers, 360,000 men-at-arms gathered for three days to make David king. It is a problem. Again, because of our population estimates for Iron Age Judah are uh, somewhat shy of that 360,000 as total inhabitants, not to mention uh, uh, men-at-arms alone. I would remind you that uh, Woodstock was 500,000 for a week, and uh, and I suspect conditions were far more primitive there. Uh, but um, some of you may have been there to witness that. Uh, but um, this uh, now, but you see, if we're if we're bothered by this large number, and both Payne and Wenham are bothered by that number, they feel it's too large. Well, then we apply the practice of either redefining the word thousand to mean a fratry, a considerably smaller number than a thousand. Or we repoint it so that the word thousand comes out to be an individual soldier, a fully armed uh, officer, a knight, if you want. Uh, and as both Payne and Wenham confront this passage, they reduce those numbers. Uh, Payne finds that uh, this probably really involved 400 people, and Wenham uh, that the total number was closer to 2,000. My, my difficulty with this is 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 21. Uh, because in 1, I'm sorry, 22, uh, in 1 Chronicles 12, 22, this list is introduced with the statement that day after day men came to help David until he had a great army like the army of God. Now, what have we done to the chronicler's intent if we reduce the army of God from 360,000 to 400? What have we done to what the author is trying to do if we reduce this number from 360,000 to 2,000? That is to say, the harmonization is, offer, is offered, but it's at the expense of what the biblical author is trying to portray. If I could just, just pause for a moment, what we have in 1 Chronicles 12, you see, is the messianic king who is gathered at the head of the army of God. Uh, and there is a banquet that goes with it. And I just urge you to read Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22, and look at the Messianic king who comes uh, at the head of the army of God, and they come to a banquet. Uh, this is the same motif that we're looking at here in the book of Chronicles. This is uh, eschatological history. It's the past written in terms of the chronicler's hopes and expectations for the future. But if we come in here and simply uh, gut these numbers, we're doing so at uh, direct cost to what the biblical author himself seems to be trying to say. 
Now, um, let me give you another example of this. In 1 Chronicles 5, 18 to 21, we have a report of some battles that take place in the Transjordan tribes, the tribes across the Jordan River. And we're told that the Transjordan tribes captured from uh, the Hagrites 50,000 camels, 250,000 sheep, 2,000 donkeys, and 100,000 captives. Well, you appreciate to right away that we cannot reduce 250,000 sheep or 50,000 camels, right? They don't come in fratries. Um, and they don't come, they don't come as military officers. Uh, and so we can't, if we, in this context, we can't reduce those other numbers. And so we best not try reducing the 100,000 captives either. Uh, what I'm trying to say is the chronicler thinks he's using numbers. Okay, and, and a device that might have some plausibility for handling these large numbers in one context fails us in another context and says to us, hey, you probably shouldn't reduce the numbers anywhere because the chronicler thinks he's using numbers. And, uh, and you see, even if we handle the large troop numbers in Chronicles by reducing them in some way, we are sooner or later going to confront a passage like 1 Chronicles 23.14 where once again the writer in Chronicles, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I should have said 22.14, I wrote 23 there, it's 22, where David says, I have taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold and a million talents of silver. Uh, quantities of gold at about 3,700 tons and quantities of silver at 37,500 tons. Uh, I tried to find uh, some information on what our national gold reserves are. Uh, but this figure is pretty much universally regarded as hyperbolic and uh, both Payne and Wenham, uh, Payne citing Wenham, conclude that this is glorious hyperbole. Uh, and uh, the question that I would raise is if it is glorious hyperbole here for quantities of metal, um, is that not also then a sufficient approach to explaining the large troop numbers so that we need not reduce those numbers uh, at the expense of what the chronicler himself seems to be trying to do? Um, all right, so the, again, what we're working on is some examples where uh, uh, harmonization gives us as many problems as it gives us help. <coughs> and uh, another place where this happens is when you compare parallel passages that have numbers, and the numbers differ in the parallel passages. No, I think in many cases, the explanation that Payne and Wenham give us is entirely appropriate. Different things are being counted. Uh, when you read the census account in 2 Samuel 24, uh, the writer of Samuel comes to the end of the passage and he says, David secured the land for the temple. Well, he secured, uh, let's put it this way, the, uh, the threshing floor of Ornan and the threshing sledges and the oxen that belonged to Ornan, he paid 50 shekels of silver for them. First Chronicles 21, the parallel passage says that he paid for the makom, the place, 600 shekels of gold. And uh, one might simply dismiss that as uh, hyperbole on the part of the chronicler again. He's uh, inflating things again. He wants to glorify the temple. N not necessarily at all. Uh, the 50 shekels of silver is defined for us as for the oxen, the sledges, and the threshing floor. That's not very much ground. Whereas the ground uh, that is being purchased is the place where Israel's temple was going to be. It's presumably far lord larger than the threshing floor itself. Uh, and uh, we get the other price for the whole farm as opposed to the corner where they thresh the grain. Uh, that sort of a harmonization doesn't trouble me at all. I think that's, that's fair with the data. And the text actually describes what's being purchased in two different ways. One, the threshing floor and the oxen. The other, the place. 
uh, and uh, it's fair to, to harmonize, I think, those passages uh, in, uh, in that way. However, uh, there are places where genuine differences do exist, and uh, they're not um, so easily explained away uh, or reconciled with one another. And uh, <clears throat> these are places where the usual approach is to appeal to uh, misread numerical notations, which are based on the use of an alphanumeric system uh, that was built on the Canaanite alphabet or on the Aramaic alphabet or a numeral system somewhat like the Egyptian hieratic numerals. Uh, so that uh, the fact that uh, numbers could be represented by letters in either one of the two different alphabets in which Hebrew was transmitted to us allows for the possibility of certain confusion because these letters look alike. Uh, or uh, the numbers in the biblical text, which are always spelled out, we argue, were at one point written in a numerical system, and someone could misread the numerals and therefore confuse the uh, various amounts that were being spoken of. Uh, once again, there is a difficulty here because we have no direct evidence for the use of alphanumeric systems before the Maccabean period. For that matter, we think that uh, they came into Israel in the Maccabean period uh, from the Greeks. And uh, there is no direct evidence which shows, shows the use uh, of uh, um, the alphabet used for numbers uh, in Israel prior to the Maccabean period. Uh, and uh, you appreciate uh, that the argument here is circular. An explanatory system is invoked to explain the discrepancies, and the discrepancies become the warrant for the explanation. Uh, and um, I'm not certain we're really going anywhere using uh, this sort of uh, evidence uh, because of the circularity of the argument. The suggested explanations may have been a factor in the transmission of the text, uh, but once again, you have the feeling that they are invoked uh, somewhat arbitrarily. Let me give you just another uh, passage uh, here. <clears throat> and we will come back to this one. Uh, 1 Kings 7.13, Hiram of Tyre is sending his uh, craftsman Huramabi to work with Solomon. And he tells um, Solomon that Huramabi's father was from Tyre, but his mother was from the tribe of Naphtali. And uh, in 2 Chronicles 2.13, same basic speech. I'm sending you Horamabi. His father is from Tyre and his mother is from Dan. Uh, the one assigns the mother's tribe to Naphtali, the other to Dan. And I once uh, asked an adult Sunday school class uh, consisting entirely of people who had no formal theological training if they could reconcile these differences. And I got seven different scenarios seven different ways in a space of five minutes, uh, seven different ways that we could create a scenario by which uh, both of these accounts could be true. Uh, some suggested she was really from Dan, but she lived in Naphtali. Others that the mother was born to parents from both tribes so that her own ancestry could be reckoned through either. Another suggested that she could, she could have lived in disputed territory contiguous to both tribes and claimed by both. One felt that Hiram could have been mistaken and corrected by the biblical historian later. <clears throat> I'll say, look, it's not hard to create these kinds of harmonizations. Uh, you can usually provide several, and you can rarely show them right or wrong. Uh, any conceivable scenario can be invoked, and uh, for logicians, Looking at the practice of harmonization in this case, it begins to look like unbridled special pleading, uh, simply invoking any set of circumstances that will cover the data. And again, uh, sometimes harmonization can become so ingenious as to undermine the biblical authority that it's trying to establish. 
perhaps the most notorious uh, example of this, I think, uh, involves reconstructing the account of Peter's denial with the result that he denied Jesus six times before the cock crowed twice. Uh, I'm sorry, so this, folks take this, this, they commend this to us as the way to do this. But the, the difficulty with it is it, it becomes so ingenious that you undermine the biblical authority that you're trying to establish. Um, and uh, a similar one, I, I don't have a ready solution for you to this one, uh, is found in the two different accounts in Kings and Chronicles for the death of Ahaziah. It's not hard to amalgamate the two passages. Uh, but once you do it, if you, if you sat down and read them, and I won't take the time to do that now, uh, I think you get the uneasy feeling that simply amalgamating these uh, is forced and contrived, that we, that we need to look for some better explanation for the differences here. <coughs> well, uh, all right, so uh, we've been talking about harmonization in terms of one of the problems one of the problems that it has uh, is the tendency to be somewhat arbitrary, to invoke uh, um, uncontrolled sets of scenarios. Uh, now, it may be that we simply can't control them, and that's the way it's going to have to be, but to appreciate why people looking on from the outside at the practice feel that that's special pleading. It, it, it doesn't look like a logically acceptable way to do business. Now, um, <clears throat> A second matter here has to do with adequacy. <clears throat> here I, I have in mind a feeling on my own part that there are features of the evangelical practice of harmonization that have not been uh, thought through as carefully as they ought. Uh, in actual application to individual texts, the approach uh, to biblical uh, problems through harmonization occasionally becomes blurred and problematic. And I want to use as an example of this the phenomenon of intra-biblical quotations, quotations of the Bible within the Bible, to illustrate the kind of uh, dilemma that I feel has not received the kind of theoretical uh, thinking that it needs, that it deserves. Uh, at first glance, the practice of harmonization appears to be uh, straightforward, uh, but then you start looking a little closer, and uh, the phenomenon of quotations is a good example. Matthew 19:17, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, why do you ask me about what's good? Whereas in the parallel text, Luke 18:19, the question is, why do you call me good? Now some feel that Jesus must have said both. The question was, why do you ask me about good? And furthermore, why do you call me good? Uh, others feel that we're talking about two different rich young rulers. Uh, but the majority of evangelical exegetes feel that uh, these variations are acceptable paraphrase, that they find uh, no, no necessary uh, harmonization, that they are within the bounds of the liberties uh, that the biblical writers uh, can take. And now a re related problem uh, is then New Testament citations of the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrews 1.6 cites Deuteronomy 32.43 but not in the form that we have it in the Hebrew Bible. It is cited in a form uh, that is found in the Septuagint and in a single fragmentary text from Qumran. Um, and uh, it's difficult for us to be sure what the original text of the Hebrew Bible should have been in this case. Uh, that which is preserved for us in the Masoretic text or that which is preserved in this Qumran fragment and in the Septuagint. Now, some might want to say that the New Testament has erroneously cited the Old Testament, has incorrectly cited the Old Testament. Others, operating with the constraints of inerrancy, 
uh, will want to use the New Testament's citation of the Old to make a text-critical decision in the Old Testament. What the New Testament has described, the way the New Testament uses the Old, establishes the text of the Old. Again, uh, uh, my, my feeling is that most evangelical theologians resist the temptation to um, extending inerrancy to making text-critical decisions. Um, the writer of Hebrews simply used the Bible that he had before him. Uh, and uh, we cannot use uh, Hebrews 1.6 necessarily to establish the text of Deuteronomy 32.43. Uh, that has to be established on the basis of considerations about Deuteronomy rather than uh, considerations about Hebrews. I think that's uh, a fair representation of typical uh, evangelical thinking in this area. And you could look at other examples of, of citations of the Old Testament in Hebrews 2, 6 to 8, in James 4, 6, and in 1 Peter 4, 18. But now, <clears throat> let me up the stakes a little bit by looking at uh, Galatians 3, 17, and its citation of Exodus 12:40. Now you know the context here in Galatians 3. Paul is talking about the promise coming to Abraham 430 years before uh, the law came to Moses. And uh, that uh, is curious because uh, the Masoretic text of Exodus 12.40 says the length of time that the children of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. That is, the law did come 430 years after Abraham, yes. It came much more than 430 years because we have to put Isaac and Jacob in there, okay, in their lifespan before the children of Israel went down into Egypt. But Paul seems to be saying, read naively, 430 years after Abraham, the law. And, uh, but it wasn't 430 years really right after Abraham. It was 430 years after Jacob goes down into Egypt, at least according to the Masoretic text. But when we look at the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Septuagint of this same verse, we find some variants. The length of time that the children of Israel lived in Egypt and Canaan, according to the Septuagint, was 430 years. And, according to the Samaritan Pentateuch, the length of the ch time the children of Israel and their fathers lived in Egypt and Canaan was 430 years. Well, here you see here the problem. We feel this problem a little more keenly because a number is involved, yes? It's hard to know is, uh, why do you ask me about good? Why do you call me good? Is that a paraphrase or not? It's a little bit ambiguous. But when a number gets involved, it's, the ambiguity goes down. And uh, how, do, how, how shall we explain this? Well, I suspect Paul is simply using the Bible that he had at hand. And that the Bible that he had at hand had a text similar to the Septuagint and Samaritan Pentateuch. I don't know that this settles the question as to which of these properly represents the correct Hebrew text. Okay, so again, we're, we're using intra-biblical citations, and uh, now we're involving historical difficulties, though. Well, let me give you one more of these uh, of an intra-biblical citation. Uh, this one's in 2 Samuel 5.21. In 2 Samuel 5.21, uh, the parallel text is found in uh, 1 Chronicles 18.4. Uh, 1 Chronicles 18.4. Uh, and um, now, this is a report of a battle against the Philistines. And uh, the Philistines abandoned on the battlefield their Atzabahem, their idols. And David and his men took them up, Faisaim, much as the Philistines took the ark, as Isaiah brought home the gods of Edom. Okay, David and his men took them up. 
And this is uh, what we find also in the Septuagint, the same statement. However, in a revision of the Septuagint, known as the Lucianic Recension, and the text of the Septuagint has, for this second line, David and his men took them up, the text of the Septuagint has instead, Kai apen daoed kata kalsayatu senpuri, and David said, David commanded to burn them in fire. Uh, now, in this text of the Septuagint, David's actions have been harmonized with the law in Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7 told Israel, when you come in the land and you find the idols of the peoples, burn them. That's the law. In 2 Samuel 5, in the MT, David seems to be uh, in some tension with the law. And um, now, the question is, did the translator of the Septuagint make this change to help David? Or was he following a Hebrew text which already had this change? Some ancient scribe had conformed David's actions to the law. Well, if you compare 1 Chronicles 18.4, uh, I'm sorry, 14.12, is it? Uh, yes, I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles 14.12. Uh, when the chronicler reports this incident, uh, the chronicler says David gave orders and they burned the idols in the fire. Now, uh, I'm not certain which was the correct text of Samuel here. I think that the chronicler was following the Bible that he had before him. He was following a text of Samuel which had the statement that David burned the idols, which differs from the text of Samuel uh, that uh, is found in the Masoretic text. That still leaves in abeyance somewhat what is the correct text of Samuel. Uh, just as Paul or the writer of Hebrews used the Bible that they had at hand, the writer of Chronicles used the Bible that he had at hand, but we are now involved in a very definite historical question. And uh, I'm sorry to belabor this, but that's why I, uh, I raised the question as to whether or not the practice of harmonization has been adequately thought through. On the surface, it looks like a straightforward, easy procedure. But when you actually start applying it in individual biblical texts, principles that you adopt in one place, variation and quotation from the old and the new, get you in trouble later on, or at least uh, provide opportunities for a great deal of discomfort uh, later on. Now, just one more thing. I know our time is up, and that's on focus. One of the other difficulties with harmonization as a practice is, uh, is its focus. Too often, uh, evangelical commentators on historical books, in particular, have treated these books as simply books full of problems. And their commentaries in the Old Testament have basically a single apologetic purpose in mind. Uh, it's a focus which tends to concentrate on minutiae and problem-solving. And uh, the evangelical writer often feels he can move on to the next passage once he has rebuffed critical opinion and thereby secured the faith of his reader in Scripture. An apologetic component in writing about the Bible is laudable. It's necessary. But the focus of exegesis is less defending a doctrine of scripture than it is elucidating what a text means. The focus must be on what the author and the text had to say to a particular audience. Uh, the text itself may only peripherally address the doctrine of scripture at all. Often the difficulties that are the grist for harmonization are the keys into the author's larger purpose. What is this author doing? A later biblical author may introduce modifications into an earlier narrative in order to portray some individual or event in a particular life. And when Matthew places Jesus' sermon on a mountain, regardless of how we harmonize that, I think what we want to see is that Matthew wants you to see Jesus as a second lawgiver 
and the Beatitudes are the new law, the Sermon on the Mount. When the chronicler assigns Horamabi's ancestry to the tribe of Dan, it's just one more piece of his making a, a, an analogy between Bezalel and Aholiab, who built the tabernacle, and Solomon and Horamabi. By the way, Aholiab was from Dan, and so was Solomon. Uh, so was uh, Horamabi, according to the chronicler. Uh, again, uh, these differences then become for us not so much problems, not so much threats, as they become opportunities.